Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. My name is Paul Podolsky. The guest I'm sharing with you today is Matt Reynolds, who is the founder and the CEO of Barbell Logic. You may have first seen him towing a tractor trailer in his teeth due to his mastery of bodybuilding techniques, understanding that he gleaned by going to libraries and really looking at original sources from vaudeville to Soviet weightlifting. Well before CrossFit, he reimagined what this training experience could look like by matching a coach to an individual's needs, meeting that person where they're at in Matt's words. And it could be a hairy business person, or it could be, as you'll hear in our conversation, an 80-year-old woman who had trouble getting out of her chair. And he's continued to evolve that vision where trading does not need to be in your town. It can be remote. And the same way the U.S. economy, I think, is going to get transformed by this, he's doing this with personal fitness. There's 340,000 personal trainers in the United States. Probably many of them are not very good. And they could be displaced by the few of them that are great and allow these people to have scale. And of course, the question I had listening to Matt is, if you could do this for learning how to squat, what could you do for algebra, which is a topic we'll pick up in later podcasts this year. So with that, welcome to Matt. A lot of people uh, probably don't know who you are. So why don't you dive in a little bit and describe your fascinating background, who you are, and then we'll, we'll get into the story in more detail. Sure. Hey, thanks for having me on the on the podcast. Actually, I'm a big fan of the podcast. We have a mutual friend in Pat Garrity, yep. who's been on the podcast. He's he is a client of ours. So I am a um, a painfully average athlete, is what I say, is what I is what I've told people. I was always the guy that I love playing sports in high school and was usually like the last starter on the team, wasn't very good, had was very, very average in in every way, and uh, discovered the weightlifting and strength training sort of at the end of my, my high school years, um, because I wasn't very good at athletics, I wasn't good enough to play division one sports. And so as I went to college, I focused on academics, uh, which was probably a good move for me. And, uh, but, at the, but I needed a competitive outlet. And so I had discovered the sport of, of powerlifting, which is where you basically lift the heaviest weights you can on the squat and the bench press and the deadlift, the big barbell lifts. And I was a little guy, like I, I graduated high school, I was 155 pounds. I was six, you know, six foot tall, six, one, 155. Uh, you can see me now I'm, I'm 250, 255. I've been over 300 pounds. I'll, I'll get there. I, uh, I started to lift heavy and, and it, it, it was great because I was in college and I was eating pizza and lots of calories and lifting weights and getting big and just having fun and, um, and, and competed in powerlifting and loved it. And then turn my attention to the sport of strongman, which a lot of your listeners have probably seen world strongest man, you know, plays usually on Christmas day on ESPN two. And, and, uh, I started doing that in 2005 and was the only, was the first thing I ever did in my life that I, I felt like I was naturally good at. Wow. Uh, I don't, I don't know why I was just decently strong and, and did fairly well. And so I, I remember going to my first competition was, was Kansas strongest man. And I won it and didn't have a very good day. So my, the day wasn't very, I, I, I don't think I performed very well. And I still won the whole show. And I thought I might, I might be okay at this. So, so, so down. So that's like, this stuff is fascinating. we got to unpack a little bit of this stuff here. Sure. The power lifting yep. thing, those, those three events, 
what is the history a little bit behind this sport? Sure. And what attracted, like I remember as a kid, I think I'm older than you, but I remember when there was three channels on television and we used to watch the Wild Wilderness Sports. That's right. You would watch people competing in this. That's right. And the Soviets typically, and there's a whole Russia thread through all these podcasts, would just crush it. Yes. And so, yes. So what is the background behind that sport? And then, and then what do you, you know, we, I want to get to the strong man for a second. What drew you to that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. The thing about a barbell was, is that you, you could titrate the weight up, right? So for, you know, I'm actually, I'm getting ready. To, I'm going to go to Scotland here in about a, you know, a week and I'm going to go pick up heavy, the Denny stones, like these stones that are in Scotland out in the middle of nowhere in a field. But, but those things are, that's a set weight. And as barbells came to be in fashion with, you know, strongman vaudeville shows, they could titrate the weight up on, on these barbells. You could add a little more weight each time. Like you could literally add five pounds or two and a half pounds. You could add a little bit. And so it actually provided some standard to strength. And so you started to see these main lifts come out. You, you saw the squat, which is where you put the barbell on your back uh-huh. and you squat down until your hips are below your knees and then yeah. come back up. That's the, that's the standard. Your hips have to go below your knees and come back up. You I'm saw the depth. I'm, I'm, I'm a rower, like a competitive outdoor rower. We yeah. have to do that a lot. And that thing kills me every single time. It's brutal. That's exactly, it's, it's brutal. The deadlift, which is really just simply picking up a heavy weight off the ground and just standing uh-huh. up with it. Yep. And, and the bench press or the press. And so the, those two are different. So you have the press, which is where you, what most of your listeners would think of a, as a military press, where you press yep. a barbell overhead, standing up or bench press. Of course, everybody knows because every 16 year old kid tries yep. to do a bench press. Right. And so those lifts sort of became, and by the way, in the beginning there, there, there was no such thing as a squat rack or so a bench press actually started as uh, that most people probably don't know. Here's a thing you didn't learn in school <laughs> that the, the diameter of a, of a barbell of a plate of a weight plate of a yep. standard, like 45 pound plate is such that it will, if you're laying on the, on the ground, it will typically roll over your face, over your neck, and will come in contact somewhere around your breastbone. And so that if you're, you, so the original bench press actually was done off the floor. It was a floor press and they would roll it over their face and they would put it on their chest and they would press it straight up from the floor. If you missed, you weren't vulnerable to decapitating yourself, which you actually are today on an actual bench press if you don't have the right setup. Yeah, it's scary. It's, it's sort of scary for sure. And so that came, that sort of became a big deal with the vaudeville shows and the circus acts and whatnot. So you saw these strongmen come around and then you would see these other things where they would do things like they would pick up cars or they would pick up really heavy stones or they would pull a train or an airplane. And those things are real. There are no tricks to those things. I mean, there really aren't. There's good form and bad form, but there's not magic. It's not sort of sleight of hand watching people pull an airplane or something like that. What do you think the, or trying to do that? What do you think the appeal is? Yeah. It's sort of like, a, I guess circus is always about sort of defying the laws of gravity or something there. Here's a great example. So if I remember the first time my parents who are very traditional, educated Midwestern people, I come from sort of teacher and pastor background, you know, so well-educated, but poor Midwestern families. And they didn't really understand the appeal of lifting heavy barbells. And if they came to a powerlifting meet and somebody squatted 600 pounds or 300 pounds or 800 pounds, it was just a whole bunch of weight on a barbell. They didn't get it. Right. Right. But if somebody picked up a car, I see, 
or they picked up a car three times versus another guy who picked up the car seven times. There was something about that. They were like, oh my goodness, this person is literally lifting up a car. Makes it very tangible. When you pull an 18 wheeler down the road, you know, where a school bus full of kids, there's something about that that they go like, how can the human body do that? And I think it's more tangible to them to see because the normal person doesn't really understand how much weight is actually at the end of that barbell. And that's actually the reason I, I turned my attention. At some point I was, I love to lift. I love to get strong. Yeah. It was a lot of fun at the time. It was just a hobby. I was, I was finishing my master's. Actually, I was, a, I was a teacher and I was finishing my master's to be a high school principal. And I, this was just a hobby that I did, right? I was, a, I was a strength coach at a high school and this is what I did as a hobby and never thought it could be a business. But the, the nature of how different strongman was, the world's strongest man, what they did, these every, every competition was different. Yeah. Every, you would show up and they would change the implements. You thought you were doing one thing and you would do something else. Powerlifting was very static, very like you're going to squat, you're going to bench press, you're going to deadlift. And then you get to strongman and you're like, I don't, I have no idea. I remember getting to an event and it was like, okay, you're going to pull an 18 wheeler and behind it, it's pulling a yacht. You're like, well, how heavy is an 18 wheeler pulling a yacht? That seems heavy. How heavy is it? Real, I don't know. Real heavy. (laughs) And and how do you practice that, right? How do you practice pulling an 18 wheeler with a yacht when you live in the Midwest? I don't know if you know this. There's no yachts here. So you're in high school, that's when you first take this interest. Then you go to college, you get a degree, and you go on to get into education. You're sort of doing this. You, when, what are the strongmen doing? Are you doing the strongman at the same time that you're a professional educator? Yeah. So it's like on the weekend, you would go and do these events? Yeah, I would travel. Oh, listen, I can remember, now I can say this, <laughs> I can remember taking the very dodgy Friday, Monday sick days, uh-huh. right? Because I would be in... Philadelphia doing America's strongest man. And I, you know, these were the early days of Facebook. And I was like, nobody take pictures of me because I, because the, you know, they think I'm sick at school and I would, I would go be, I would be, you know, on ESPN two or, or on, and I'm hoping that nobody that the school board doesn't see that I'm there. This is like 2005 and it was such a weird, and I would come back and, and then, you know, I'd fly home and please don't let the flights get delayed. And I have to show up on Tuesday morning to teach class. And I would teach class. And then on Wednesday night, I'm going to finish my master's degree as a principal. It was such a weird time period in my life. So you had this whole separate passion that was brewing yeah. and you didn't quite know where it was going. And it was almost like the, the bounce. I didn't think that there was the ability to turn that into a a profitable business because I, I felt for a long time, I thought like, this is such a niche sport, like picking up really heavy weights, picking up heavy rocks, picking up like, how could this ever appeal to the masses? And this is pre CrossFit, like CrossFit really blew up in 2008, 2009, right? This is before those years, even. So we're talking 2003, four, five. And so I thought, how could this possibly happen? And, um, and yet I thought, gosh, if I could just, if I could just change a few people's lives for fun on the side, I could be a high school principal and I can make a decent living and support my family. I was married and had kids and, and my wife was a teacher in the same school district I was. And so I thought, well, that's what this is going to look like. I'm going to, so I, I decided to open a gym and as a part-time job, I had a, I had a business partner who actually was on medical disability from the Navy. So he was able to work there more full-time. I was there part-time before and after school. 
in the mornings and evenings on the weekends. And I would start to train clients and I would train, I would train guys like you. I would train business professionals mm -hmm. who wanted to train in sort of a hardcore manner. They were, they were, they were attracted to that. But the thing that I was seeing is that any other gyms that were doing that at the time, it was in a, it was in a dirty warehouse. It was gross. It stunk. It wasn't clean. It, and I thought, why does it have to be that way? Like, surely we can provide phenomenal customer service, really clean, e even though we couldn't afford a great storefront at the time. Right. Right. It could be clean. It could be nice. We can have great customer service and let's just train normal gen pop people this way and let's see what happened. And what happened was we, we hit product market fit in my town and it exploded accidentally. And all of a sudden I was backpedaling. In terms of a lot of people, I understood that the model for gyms is a business, not saying yours, in general is yeah. sell memberships like at the beginning of the year when people are trying to lose weight, build a bit a gym that can hold like 20 people, sell memberships for yep. 200 because the vast majority of people aren't going to use it. How important for this transformation is the mentality of the person, which is sort of a, a little bit of a lateral thing, but I'm thinking like something very obvious, at least for my mind for health right now is get vaccinated. Sure. But only 53% of the American population is vaccinated. Sure. And I'm like, wow. Yep. Okay. You can die and 53% will take something that is free that requires no effort. That's right. So how much is this transformation you're talking about is the mentality of the person and how does that vary by gym and how do you basically cultivate that? It's everything. I mean, it, it's, that is the thing, right? Like you are essentially proselytizing the value of strength as a quality of life improver, right? Mm -hmm. That You know, to bring it back to the vaccine, like I'm in the Midwest, right? Where people are very, very hesitant. Yes. And I, I, I am amazed and I'm not going to make a judgment call on people and do what they want, but I'm always amazed at the people who are 400 pounds with diabetes, metabolic syndrome. And they're like, listen, we don't know what the side effect of the vaccine is like, Hey, I know what the side effect of COVID is. If you get it <laughs> right. 400 pounds with diabetes, right? You're going to die. Fitness is the same thing. Like we, when we can start to look at fitness and barbells as medicine, because they are, mm. because they work for every body, they work for every body, mm. then, then that's the paradigm shift, right? I think people get this thing in their head where they're like, oh, like barbells and weightlifting, that's for, you know, 20 year old boys who, you know, want to take pictures of themselves in the mirror and go like, it's a meat market at the gyms. By the way, gyms are a terrible place. Gyms are awful, right? They, they do everything to strip away whatever confidence you have. You walk in there, you're, nobody joins a gym because they feel great about themselves. They join a gym because they feel terrible about themselves. They just got a divorce. Their dad just died of a heart attack. They, they put on the dress that they thought would always fit and it doesn't. They, like what? They're not in a good place when they join a gym and gyms do a terrible job of building that confidence. They destroy confidence. Mm. And one of the things that we've, we've tried to do, and I'm not trying to make this a commercial for what, what we do, but like the fitness industry desperately needs to learn how to connect with people and meet them where they are and mm. build their confidence. Like that's the key. The, these are two big things here, which is a, how did you actually learn how to do it? Did somebody teach you or did you have to teach yourself? What was that process like? And then I want to talk about gyms that people actually go to versus gyms that people sign up for. They don't go to. That's right. Huge difference. So 
yes. So I was go- I was getting my undergrad at the time or when I was getting my undergrad. I can still remember I was I was at Missouri State University, which is in Springfield, Missouri, in the Ozarks. I've been there. And I I can re- have you been to Springfield, Missouri? Yep. And so uh, I can remember going to what I call the catacombs of the library at the time and finding the, the full, for full circle here, finding the old Soviet strength books that had been translated into English at this point. So when, when the Soviet Union fell, you know, from, from 89 to 91, those Soviet sport coaches all moved to the United States and they became sports scientists and, and professors a lot of them went to Penn State and they translated their books into English or had their books translated into English. Of course, nobody cared about those except for me. I'm nerding out. It's 1998, 1999. I'm nerding out. I'm down in the basement with the with the bookshelves that you know slid together. So to open yeah. up a bookshelf and you'd go in and here's the one little section. And here, here are these books by, you know, by Tudor Bampa and by Verhoshansky and by Zatsiorsky and by these guys. And you're and I thought I had found the Holy Grail in 99. And I'm reading about what the Soviets were doing in the 70s and 80s, which were still 20 to 40 years ahead of what we were doing in the Western world, because they put all of their best scientists in, in sport or in their space program. And, and so and so I, I'm reading this stuff and I'm going to have my, my mind blown. So, yeah, there was nothing there was really nothing there. Of course, again, you're talking about 98, 99, the, the earliest of the Internet. And and searching what I could find on message boards and these, you know, just whatever you could find. And so I I taught myself this how to how to learn about this process. And then I just started diving in and, and coaching as best I could. And I got really lucky and got got hooked up with other coaches in the industry at the time who were who had been in the in the public sector of strength coaching, coaching is division one, usually strength coaches and, and went on to become, you know, professional strength coaches or strength coaches in the private sector. And, and we were these guys that nerded out on this stuff in the late nineties. And so as the mid two thousands rolled around and I was able to open the gym, I, I knew I could coach people. The question was, and I, I, I had no idea what product market fit was in 2005 or 2006. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, no clue. I couldn't have told you at all. I knew that I was searching for like, would this work for normal people? No one else was doing that. Everyone else on the internet and everyone else in the gym was trying to promote a fitness lifestyle to athletes or beautiful people in their 20s. And I thought like, how do, how do we get the 50-year-olds? How do we, because that's, those are the lives we really change. How do we change not just 50 year olds, but 60, 70 people in their eighties. I mean, we, we have clients in their nineties that do this stuff. And, I believe it. And it changes their lives. Well, particularly right as you age, you begin to lose muscle. Tremendously. If you're going to have an aging society, it almost feels like this, this now becomes critical for maintaining balance, stability and everything else. It is so counterintuitive to tell somebody who's 85 what we need to do is pick up a, a really heavy barbell because they go like, there's no way. And their, and their doctor says there's no way. And I can remember the first, I, I had a, I had a lady, Miss Sybil. I've talked about her before. She, uh, she came and saw me for the first time. She's 80 years old. Now she's 85 and she had never been in a gym before her son. had He would come in and see her in town and he would travel. He was from Colorado. He would come in and he would get sessions from me when I owned the gym and he'd go, gosh, I sure wish I could, get you to coach my mom. She was a widow. And, um, and you know, she had been living in this big house by herself for six or seven years at the time. And she'd never stepped foot in a gym. 
and 80 years old, she had had double hip replacement, mm. a knee replacement. Mm. Most of her back was fused together. And she had about an inch and a half cut off of one of her Achilles tendons. And this <gasps> all before, before she met me. So, I mean, she's broken. She's broken, right? Now, her mind is incredibly sharp. I mean, sharp. She tells great stories, incredible memory. She can hold a room. But physically, she's broke. Like she was struggling to get off the toilet. She was struggling to get in and out of her car. So while she could, she, she mentally she was great. Physically, she was completely broken. And so she was nervous to come to the gym. And her son convinced her to let me come over to her house and meet her. And I can remember she made me biscotti and coffee, and I did biscotti and we drank. And I taught her, I taught her on that first day how to stand up out of her dining room chair at 80 years old. And that was a squat for her mm -hmm. standing up out of your dining room chair, not without putting your hands on your knees and stand, you know, pushing up, mm -hmm. but to actually stand up. Can we do this right? No weight. Let's not worry about the depth. Let's, can we get you to sit in a, your dining room chair and stand back up the right way and build up from there? I taught her how to do push-ups against a wall, not down on the floor. Right. Because that's, that's too hard. Mm -hmm. I taught her. She's, she was a, uh, she was a, an organist, a Methodist organist that played, a, that played one of those big pipe organs. I can remember bringing a 15-pound kettlebell and stacking it on Methodist hymnals to get it to the right height so she could bend over and pick it up because she couldn't go all the way down and pick anything up off the floor. And that's what we did on day one. And I came back two days later, and we did a little more. And then two days later, did a little more. And on, and on the fifth or sixth day, she said, you know, like, I want to see what your gym looks like. And I said, okay, come on, come on out. Let's do it. And we'll come out to the gym. And so what's the, how does it talk about her progression over these five years you've been working with her? She deadlifts 155 pounds for sets of five from the floor. Like she's a champ. <laughs> she sold her car and bought a sports car with a spoiler on it. And, you know, I've got to, I've got to keep the, you've got an 85 year old woman that deadlifts 150 pounds, 155 pounds for sets of five for five reps per set. And she squats and she bench presses and she's, you know, and she's way less broken than she was. And so her quality of life, and this is, this is the key because it, it, this, it seems like it is, I don't understand why it's so hard to wrap our minds around why no one else has done this, but why are we doing fitness? Ultimately, it's not actually to look better. Yeah. We want to look better, right? Like, yeah, we want to perform better, but ultimately we're trying to improve our quality of life. That's what it is. It's quality of life improvement. And, and coaches and trainers try to fit their clients into their mold and say, this is what you have to be. You have to like Sybil wasn't going to be a 250 pound power lifter, strong man, right? She was in her eighties, right? But her next stop when you can't get off the toilet is the nursing home. Yes. This is death. Basically. If you stop moving, that's right. I don't care how great your brain is. I don't care how sharp you are. Like that's a bad place to be. And so now she's completely independent. It's given her the freedom that she's needed and wanted and desired for so many years. Mm. And I watched the same thing happen to her in her 80s that happened to me at 19. If we make people stronger, healthier, improve their quality of life, like that's the result. And it, and it works for everybody. So it's, it's been a joy to be able to change people's lives that way. How does it change when you're working with people online? Like when I see people do it in the, the place where I row, they, they also encourage us to lift weights and they typically have people in there, you know, next to somebody moving their elbows, blah, blah, blah. So now you're doing it online. So how does that work? And what's your advice for the transformation somebody needs to make 
you know, how much of this is diet, how much of it is lifestyle to to make these adjustments that you're talking about. I'm going to say something controversial that everyone actually knows is true. The vast majority of personal trainers are morons and have no idea what they're doing. And you know this, and everybody knows it, and I know it. And when I was a 19-year-old kid, I was a moron and had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. In the United States, in the Western world, there's almost no real certifying body about identifying when someone is a, an actual professional or not. Like you can go on, on Groupon and pay $25 and get yourself a personal trainer certification and, and get insurance and you're a certified personal trainer. Congratulations, right? So how do you distinguish between the expert coaches, by the way, experts don't even want to be called trainers. I mean, you would still call us a trainer, but we would rather be called coaches than trainers from the kid that's got the purple polo on with the name tag that says trainer, right? Like that's not who we are. And so the problem is, is that most people don't have access to an expert. Mm -hmm. If they did, they wouldn't know how to identify one, right? Mm -hmm. Even if they could find one, they are, the experts are prohibitively expensive Mm -hmm. and you have to fit their schedule, right? So the Mm -hmm. expert goes like, Hey, I've got 1030 in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that's it. You got, is that, if that's not open, sorry, that's, that's what I've got. And so we saw a need in the industry that said, how do we bring expert coaches to anybody? What, no matter where they live, it doesn't matter if they live in rural America, we can pair someone with a personal coach for them. Okay. Well, how do you do it online? Like they're in New York city and you're in Hong Kong. How could that possibly work? Right. Right. Well, you, you, we have our own software. you get your program and first off you fill out your goals and here's what I'm trying to do. And we find out backgrounds on injuries and all that sort of stuff. We do a zoom call, you get to know your coach and then your coach starts to prescribe programming for you on an app. And then you video yourself on your cell phone. It's that simple doing your workout and you upload it to your coach. And within 24 hours, your coach breaks it down. Just, I mean, just like it's Monday night football and the, and the commentators are breaking down the X's and O's. Like we do screen recordings and we're drawn on it and you see what we see. All right, Paul, I see you squatting here. Notice that your weight shifted to your toes. We want to keep your weight back here on the midfoot. See? And so we do that every single workout of every single exercise of every single workout within 24 hours, 365 days a year. Yes. Nutrition plays a huge part of this as well. We have registered dietitians and nutrition coaches. We, we take a, an approach with nutrition, very similar to the way we do with, with training, which is we, we, we triage first. We see where the biggest issues are, right? If you're mm-hmm. drinking a six pack of beer at night, okay, that's probably the first thing we need to fix, <laughs> like whatever that is. Uh, and then we we really try to develop long term sustainable habits. Nobody wants to eat like a bodybuilder. Well, I, I don't want you eating chicken breast and broccoli. You don't want to eat chicken breast and broccoli, right? I, if you want to have a cookie on a Friday night or you want to have a beer or a nice glass of wine, you should be able to have that and developing a right relationship with food will let you do that and will help contribute to an increase and improvement in your quality of life. And so that's really what this entire piece is about. How do we do fitness in a way that improves our quality of life that doesn't control us, that doesn't take over all of our thoughts? That doesn't isn't something we think about all the time. It doesn't force us to be in the gym seven, eight, ten hours a week. None of those things are going to work because none of them are sustainable. Let's let's talk about that for a second. The obsessiveness. So there is a little bit of an OCD element. On the one hand, it takes a real shift in mentality to go down that path. But on the other hand, it can turn into a monster. How do you navigate that? By first by connecting the client with the right coach and understanding and building the relationship with the client. We have to have an open 
relationship with the client to know. So if, if you are an obsessive personality, mm. I have to know that if, if 99.9% of online coaching businesses out there are sending out templates, right? You're getting a Google yeah. sheet right. and do the Google sheet and it doesn't take the person into context. So for, for us at Barbell Logic, the, the, we don't try to fit the person into the program. The person is the program, right? And so that's important for a couple of reasons. There are a lot of people who are uber competitive in triathlons or CrossFit or whatever, who are ex addicts in something like ex drug yes. addicts, ex alcoholics. They've just transitioned the that's right. addiction to something healthier than heroin right? yes. or whatever it is. And that's probably a good move for them, but it's not, it's still not a healthy place to be. Right. And right. then we have the people who have never done anything physical in their entire life. They've lived their entire life sedentary. They've sat on the couch. They, again, they've got that. They're, they're morbidly obese. They have metabolic syndrome. They're traditional Western. Like they way overeat processed carbohydrates and fats, not nearly enough protein. They don't move around enough. And that's a completely different, that takes a completely different person and a completely different coach to coach them. It's a different mindset. We're actually trying to push for a little more commitment out of that group where right. you're trying to take those ex-professional athletes and you're trying to pull back and go like, Hey, let's, let's learn how to get joy out of life, out of hanging out with your kids and your wife and going on vacation and having a right relationship with exercise and food, not an obsessive one. That's really what it's all about. It's about meeting people where they are really. I mean, we're real, we're very careful with this and we, and we're, we protect privacy with everything we've got at Barbell Logic. But if, if you were up all night arguing with your wife and you didn't sleep, that's something I need to know as a coach. I'm not going to judge you, but like, I've got to change your workout, right? Cause the workout's not going to go well. And I want you to go in and get a little win. It's about getting a little win, yeah. especially after a night of losses, right? Or, Hey, I drank two bottles of wine. I'm really <laughs> sorry, coach. Like we get that. Like what? I'm not here to judge you. We are really, really I mean, tuned into when not just when somebody gets married or has a baby, but when somebody's dog dies, mm. when somebody makes a job change, when somebody moves, when somebody buys a new home, when somebody like whatever that thing is, we recognize those milestones and we celebrate or we, you know, we, we cry with them sometimes. And I think those are the things that matter when you know your coach cares. And often when you're doing this, like the reality is, man, Paul, probably you're the only guy on earth that cares about your rowing. <laughs> That's true. But if you have a coach that actually you believe cares as much about your rowing as you do, yep. the accountability that comes with that is you row a lot harder. Yeah, the power of community. That's exactly right. That's what it's about. Talk about nutrition. I think Schwarzenegger said that he'd written a bunch of diet books. And to him, it, he, he said, listen, I've sold a lot of these things. Basically, it comes down to eat a lot of vegetables, eat a little bit of protein, and don't eat a lot of bread. Okay, so here's what it is. At its most foundational level, it's calories in, calories out. Like that, you just can't get away from the science, right? If you, if you burn more calories than you eat, you lose weight. What kind of weight do you lose? Well, you lose both lean mass and fat mass. You, you lose, there's no way to lose just fat, and there's no way to gain just muscle. If you do this right and, you're and you need to lose weight, you can skew the weight loss to being more, more fat. And if you need to gain weight, you're underweight, you need to gain some good muscle weight, you can skew it towards a little more muscle. But if you're eating in a caloric deficit, 
you are going to lose muscle and fat. And if you're eating in caloric surplus, you're going to gain both muscle and fat. Now, how do we skew it? Well, we skew it with the macronutrients and the macronutrients are the way we partition out protein, fat, and carbs. Protein is what builds tissue. That's it. It's the building box of tissue. It builds muscle. It builds organs. It builds hair, skin, fingernails, and all that stuff is built by protein. And then the carbs and the fat are what provide the energy for us. And so it really depends on what type of energy you want to have. For most people, they're going to do better with some carbs, with a fair amount of carbs. Obviously, you can eat really an unlimited amount of vegetables. Like who would say that vegetables are something that like, that's what's been so crazy about you know, when we were kids, the food pyramid, how are vegetables not at the bottom of the food pyramid? Mm-hmm. Who would say that's not the most important thing to eat, right? Like, it's like an Asian diet. Yeah, at the that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so uh, and for us, of course, we put it four steps up or something ridiculous. <laughs> so yes, you should eat as many vegetables. Uh, and so for, for most people, they'll probably do better with a moderate carbohydrate diet where those carbohydrates are from single ingredient foods, right? Rice, potatoes, fruit, fruit and vegetables like, like carrots, uh, or tomatoes or peppers or things that are a little higher carbohydrate, uh, those single ingredient carbohydrates do much better than processed carbohydrates. Your body handles them better, but from a caloric standpoint, it still comes into calories in calories out. It's awfully hard to overeat on calories to eat too many calories in carrots. I've n- I'm yet to see anybody do it, but when we do predominantly endurance sport, so it, so rowing is a great example. You know, you, you can row 500 meter sprints or like hundred meter, 200 meter sprints. And those are intense. Those are very glycolytic. Yep. They burn it's glycolysis. It burns glycogen. That's sugar. It's glucose, right? You want lots of carbs when you're doing those 5,000 meter rows, those 10,000 meter rows, those are very, that's an aerobic exercise, right? It's aerobic is a terrible word because it just means with oxygen, but what it actually does, it's actually oxidizing fatty acids. So it's it, think about it this way. When you open, when you cut open an avocado, right. And you make guacamole, what happens if you leave the avocado sitting on your counter? Rots. It doesn't just rot. Like what, what's it look like? Yeah. It turns jet black. It turns brown and that, right. Well, what is going on is it's actually oxidizing that fat. Like an avocado is primarily fat. It oxidizes the fat, right. And over time, it, well, that's actually what's happening with aerobic exercise. It oxidizes the, literally the oxygen you breathe in through cellular respiration oxidizes some fatty acids. And that's, and that's how you continue to burn. The thing with aerobic energy system is if you think about it, like in a, in sort of a, a water faucet, it is like a aerobic energy system is like a water faucet. that's turned on just a little bit and it's just runs forever and it never stops. It never stops because we never stop breathing, right? Like if it stops, you're dead. And when I need to get really like an intense amount of energy, like a rabid skunk runs in the room and I've got to run as fast as I can out of the room away from this rabid skunk, that faucet can't give me enough energy. I need a fire hydrant. I don't need a water faucet. And that fire hydrant is glycolysis and it starts burning glucose. It's burned sugars, right? But the side effect is, is that for aerobic energy, when I do that long, slow duration, the thing that's given off is CO2. I just breathe out the CO2, right? The thing that's given off when I do the really intense stuff, the glycolysis, I get all this weird waste. It's lactate, it's pyruvate, it's a buildup of hydrogen ions. And it's why you get really, really tired 
if you do a 500 meter sprint, you ever done a 500 meter sprint on a, on a road? They're, they're off. Sure. They're like the worst thing ever. Right. You're like, can I, can I do it in under a minute 30? Can I do a one twenty six five? Like that's your kill, but you you're dying by the end. Why is it that you can't row a 5,000 meter sprint at the same speed that you can row at the same basic pace that you can row 500? Well, because one is aerobic and it, it will last forever. It's, it's long in duration, but low in intensity. And the other one is high in intensity, but short in duration. It doesn't last that long. That's why those guys run the hundred meter sprint, 200 meter sprint much faster per hundred meters than somebody that runs a 16. What is your key advice for people that are listening to this? So I would definitely put the weightlifting was I learned it around school. Like it was definitely guys, you know, who are bench pressing and stuff like that. Never had the training that you're describing, but it was as a way of being definitely yeah. older people were not lifted sure. weights around sure. me. So what is your is sort of key lessons for people that are listening to this, if they want to sort of absorb some of what you're saying into their lives? Here's a thing that I think will bring people value. We, we were able to monetize our business early, and then we were able to build our channel, like our YouTube channel after. A lot of people build the, you know, they build their, they become an influencer, and then they figure out how to monetize. We went backwards. So we were able to actually have have sort of the, the capital to put together really, really good, short, easily digestible videos on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and you go to the Barbell Logic YouTube channel, there are a ton of little three minute, four minute videos on exactly how to get started, on exactly how to squat, on exactly how to deadlift. Here's the exact form you need. It costs nothing. It doesn't have a sales pitch in the end. That's not the goal. The goal is like, we're not mm -hmm. a content company. We're a service company. And we want to put out content for free. And we want that content to be outstanding. As a matter of fact, we want it to be the best in the world because at some point, a percentage of those people who consume that content will become paying clients. So for me, I don't need to try to sell your listeners on trying to become paying clients of Barbell Logic. Just go look at, just go watch the videos, right? We've got the long form podcast as well. But right. for the fastest education in the shortest amount of time to be able to get started, if you're like, man, it's, I'm going to hear this and I want to get started this week. You could watch 25 or 30 minutes worth of video on YouTube and you can go walk into a gym and be really confident that you're going to get it 95% right on day one. And that's where I'd start. That was a great conversation. Thank you for making time. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber that helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.